All aboard the History Express. My name is Donnie Hazel, and I am your host. To all my original listeners, welcome back. To all my new listeners, welcome. We hope you enjoy this episode of the History Express podcast. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. Sellafield, Britain's most controversial industrial site. The massive complex looks somewhat out of place against a background of rural beauty. But it was here, on the edge of the Lake District, in a remote corner of northwest England, that British scientists learned the production techniques for manufacturing plutonium, that most feared of man-made substances. Since the 50s, it has played a key role in providing Britain and the United States with the essential ingredients for atomic weapons and become an integral part of the nuclear power program of a number of countries. Over the years, the name of the site has changed from Windscale to Sellafield, and control moved from the Atomic Energy Authority to British nuclear fuels. Along the way, mistakes have been made. There have been intense arguments over the way the plant has been run and expanded, and accusations of secrecy. Against this background, British nuclear fuels declined to defend the company's past record, preferring to talk only about current projects. Harold Bolter worked at the heart of BNFL for nearly 20 years of this controversial period. Resigning in 1994, after being cleared of financial misconduct, he contemplated suicide over the way he felt he'd been treated. But instead, he spoke out about his experiences within the company about the successes and failures, and about the self-imposed secrecy he claims was paramount in the attitudes of managers inside Sellafield. The activities of nuclear sites like this are now viewed by many with suspicion because of past links between civil and military programs. But in the middle 50s, there were no such fears. Memories of the Second World War were still strong, and it was the terrifying power of the atom which had beaten the Japanese. But in 1955, a conference in Geneva told how atoms could be put to work for peaceful means. Britain was amongst the leaders in exploiting this exciting new technology, and the future it promised to deliver would free those with access to it from the growing power of the Middle East oil states. At the initiative of President Eisenhower, a great deal of information was given out to the, to, to the rest of the free world, as he called it in, 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 in those days. And it looked as though nuclear power was going to be almost the savior of, of mankind. Here, for people of my generation, for whom the atomic bomb had been such a horror, was the classic case of swords into plowshares. This was how we were to use this terrifying power for, for peaceful purposes. It was safe. It was cheap, almost free fuel, and it was peaceful. And what I learned by experience over the years, and I was responsible for the British nuclear program for eight years longer, I think, than any minister in the world, was that it isn't safe, it isn't cheap, three and a half times the cost of coal, and it isn't peaceful. The whole thing was launched for the bomb and was about the bomb. There may have been a naivete amongst scientists and politicians alike about what the future held for nuclear power, 
but it did little to diminish their enthusiasm. Plans were laid for a huge number of nuclear power stations around Britain, consisting of Magnox plants like those at Calder Hall and Chapel Cross, a few miles away on the other side of the Solway estuary, advanced gas-cooled reactors, and for the technology which excited the scientists most, the fast breeder. Spent fuel would be reprocessed after several years of use, and the plutonium recovered burned in the fast breeder reactors. The result would be to extend by an enormous amount the useful life of the world's known uranium supplies and reduce the cost of the electricity produced. So attention was turned to building a reprocessing plant which would do the job. It's felt that we needed the plutonium, one for the weapons program, but also for the fast reactor system, which was really the, the, the end objective of everybody in the nuclear industry. And so that was the first attraction of reprocessing. Then it became apparent that countries like Japan, just building up their program, were also in need of uh, plutonium for fast reactors. And there was an assumption then that worldwide nuclear power would take off and that uranium prices would shoot up with everybody building reactors all over the world. And that it made economic sense to recycle uranium if you could do it as well. So there was an apparent need for recycled uranium and plutonium. There was an early hiccup in the plan after an additional plant was added to what had previously been used as a military reprocessor. An accident contaminated 30 workers and the building was permanently shut down. But managers continue to argue the logic of reprocessing. It made sense as part of what was seen as Britain's nuclear future. It seemed that overseas business was there to be won, a business which could generate profit from utilities faced with a choice of what to do with their own spent fuel. So they came up with a plan to build a new process which would cash in on this perceived worldwide demand. Thorpe, a thermal oxide reprocessing plant. There are really two options. One is to reprocess and recycle, and the other is to directly dispose of spent fuel. The UK concept has always been uh, reprocessing and recycling, and that's really what Sellafield is all about. It's a reprocessing plant. Certainly, if we go back uh, to those days, um, countries both in Europe and in uh, Asia were looking to develop nuclear power programs. And we were part of that process. There were customers who were talking to us about the services that they could see they would want in the future. And that was really what created the, uh, the, the momentum for looking at Thorpe so that we could provide a recycling service both to domestic customers and to those overseas. While the Thorpe plant was never seen in narrowly economic or financial terms, Thorpe was one part of quite a complex structure and it was very much near the heart of that structure in which nuclear power had to do with producing plutonium as well as producing power. The plutonium would either have a military need or it would be recycled back into a new generation of fast breeder reactors which in the end have never proved commercial. And for those in the industry, reprocessing fuel was somehow so much at the heart of the whole enterprise that it somehow wasn't even relevant to conduct a conventional economic analysis because it was one of the foundations of the whole edifice and they were worried that the whole building would fall down if they didn't have reprocessing. So it was just one of those inevitable things that you had to do to push the whole nuclear enterprise forward. Up to this stage, there had been general support for the concept of nuclear power in Britain. But in the middle of the decade, something was to happen which would begin to change the view of many. British nuclear fuels were convinced their plan for Thorpe had popular backing, 
and were confident of getting the go-ahead to build it without encountering the delay imposed by a public inquiry. But then the Daily Mirror ran a front-page story which would forever change the public perception of what Sellafield was about. Moreover, it brought previously muted objections to the forefront and opened the doors for discussion of nuclear policy by laymen who had no specific scientific expertise. In May 1975, while I was working for Friends of the Earth, I wanted to prepare a piece of basic information that would be accessible to anybody who was interested in nuclear issues, because the nuclear industry had always been able to pretend that only qualified experts were entitled to make pronouncements about policy on nuclear issues. And this seemed to me to be outrageous special pleading. A nuclear reactor is not more complicated than a color television set. And people are always willing to express opinions about the social and political impact of color TV, even if they don't know how the set works. And you should take the same approach to a technology like nuclear power. So I prepared a four-page tabloid, which was given away in enormous quantities by Friends of the Earth. And on the front page of that tabloid, I had one of the two articles headed, Wind Scale to be World's Radioactive Dustbin? And five months later, the Daily Mirror picked up this dustbin phrase and put it on its front page. as the Wind Scale, the world's nuclear dustbin. And the dustbin phrase has been there ever since. And I was at home, and um, being a morning paper journalist, was still in bed when my small daughter brought the, the Daily Mirror up and showed me it and said that her mother thought I had to look. And it said, Windscale, as the, pl as, the, as the site was then called, the world's nuclear dustbin. My reaction was, should I really go to take this job? Because I had two weeks still to run on the Financial Times. I hadn't quite joined BNFL. So my first concern was, well, what did this mean? And what would it mean in terms of politics? And then uh, the company partly couldn't believe what had happened because newspapers until then had been praising the company for getting the business. In effect, the story had been turned on its head. What to some journalists was a, a UK triumph in terms of business became an ecological disaster in the terms used by the Daily Mirror. Despite the Mirror's story, BNFL could still have escaped a public inquiry had they not shot themselves in the foot in spectacular fashion. B-38, the building which housed the ponds holding spent fuel from Magnox reactors, had sprung a leak. A hundred gallons of water a day was flooding into the soil around the building. It had been built 12 years earlier and had a capacity of 70,000 gallons. But no one knew for how long the leak had been going on. When these radioactive discharges were eventually discovered, Sellafield's managers were faced with a critical decision. Should they come clean about the leak at such an important time when the cabinet was discussing the building of Thorpe, or keep quiet about it for fear of influencing the political decision? They kept quiet. It was to prove a fateful decision, which forced the public inquiry and undoubtedly cost BNFL and the taxpayer tens or even hundreds of millions of pounds. The site was aware of this. The site management of Sellafield was aware of this, but obviously didn't want to rock the boat while the cabinet was looking at the proposition that Thorpe should be built without a public inquiry. But to be fair to them, they also felt that it was relatively trivial radioactive material which was getting into the ground and they did tell some of the regulators of the day in the region about it reasonably early, a week or two into it. And nobody rang warning bells then. It was only when it reached politicians through rumours from the site that I was approached 
by John Cunningham, the MP for what is now Copeland, then Whitehaven, to say, what do you know about a leak? And I knew nothing, and neither did the chairman or chief executives of that day. I was told by BNFL that they had an offer of uh, reprocessing uh, fuel from Japan. We had supplied one reactor to Japan. And the argument was we had the equipment to do it. It was very profitable in any way. It was part of a non-proliferation program. And the matter went to the cabinet. It was considered by the cabinet, I think, on the 24th of November. And uh, two months earlier, there had been a leak of 100 uh, gallons of, uh, of waste. And that was known to BNFL at the time. They didn't tell me. I went to the cabinet and presented their argument for considering the thought project in ignorance of a leak, which had it been known, certainly known publicly, would have set the whole argument into a totally different frame. And that uh, was another example of my confidence in them being shaken. Not just that they didn't tell the truth, but that they uh, were able to instruct my officials not to tell the responsible minister who had the job of keeping Parliament and the public informed, not to tell the minister what they knew to be the case. And I was absolutely horrified by that. I had given instructions, I had to, that every incident in a nuclear station, however small might be a little radioactivity on a glove, was to be reported to me, and I published. Uh, and when I was misled, uh, that really shook my confidence in them. Now, it, was it important? It was certainly important enough for there to be a public inquiry, a big delay, and, and possibly some lost business. But that silo, strangely enough, is still in use. It's not been emptied yet. And that's one of the dilemmas with old plants at Sellafield. Until you can develop a, a ways of not only decommissioning these old buildings, but dealing with the material, the, the, the debris of decommissioning through a waste repository or something, there's no point in taking it down. And so that silo is still, still there, it's still being used, and there is that contamination still in the ground. In June 1977, a protracted public inquiry into the proposal began in nearby Whitehaven, presided over by Lord Justice Parker. It lasted a hundred days and attracted representation from a broad spectrum of interested parties. Foremost amongst them was Friends of the Earth. The group had waged a year-long campaign against Thorpe a campaign they said had done much to achieve broad publicity for an inquiry which became inevitable after the B-38 fiasco. They entered the fray with high hopes and were utterly convinced they had a strong case against the new plant. We knew how committed the official establishment was to going ahead with this idea, but the further we investigated it and the more we studied the facts of the case, and the more information we gathered internationally about experience elsewhere, the more convinced we were that there was a very, very strong factual case against the plant. And we thought we were being given a forum to put that case at the Windscale Inquiry. For British nuclear fuels, the Windscale Inquiry was a door to the future. Thorpe was the company's flagship, their key project for the rest of the century. And there was a genuine belief that the nuclear world would rush to take advantage of the new reprocessing facility. The inquiry had to be won at all costs. It was seen as very important, and um, for its day, it was a long inquiry. It was 100 working days. And now that looks quite small after what happened at Sizemore, but it was a long inquiry. And lots of strategic issues, defence issues, non-proliferation issues, as well as economic, environmental, health and safety, were covered at that inquiry, um, which was, frankly, quite an experience. I spent 
all but about three days of those 100 there. And it was an education, frankly, to listen to what was going on and what was being argued. At the end of it, I was in no doubt that BNFL would get approval, but talking to people like Walt Patterson, the Friends of the Earth, he was in no doubt that it would be refused. The uh, arguments that we presented were led by a senior and experienced QC, and the cross-examination that we carried out on a number of British nuclear fuels witnesses, in effect, if you read the transcript, simply demolished the arguments that they had presented. But if you go back and read the final report by the inspector, Justice Parker, you will see no sign whatever, either of the evidence that we introduced or of the cross-examination we carried out. Parker simply accepted BNFL's assertions as made effectively in their opening presentation and trailed them in the report as though they had passed all the cross-examination. And this, the report itself was frankly a travesty of the inquiry. At the end of the inquiry, we thought, including our QC, we thought we had made a case that was unarguably strong. So it was obviously a well-conducted inquiry in the sense that you didn't know what the inspector and his assessors were going to say at the end, you, you hoped. And eventually, it was a very strong report in favour. And I think that was right, based on the knowledge then. Bolter says that if they had known in the 70s what they now know in the 90s, they probably wouldn't have built the plant. Well, in the 1970s, we told them. But they not only ignored us, they misrepresented the evidence which had been presented to them. If you go back and look at the case that Friends of the Earth presented at the Windscale Inquiry, you will see that it has subsequently been vindicated pretty much com comprehensively from beginning to end. In fact, we were conservative. We didn't actually state that things would turn out to be as unpropitious as they have proved to be. BNFL told Lord Justice Parker that the split of home and overseas fuel to be handled by Thorpe would be 50-50. It was an important issue after the fears raised by the Daily Mirror's headline the previous year. But in reality, about 70% of the reprocessing in Thorpe's first decade will come from outside the UK. And there's doubt the inquiry would have given the go-ahead for the plant had this been known at the time. I think we would have had problems getting approval for the plant because one of the planks of the objector's arguments was that this was going to make Sellafield into the world's nuclear dustbin. We are going to take spent fuel from overseas with all these nasty things in it, and we were going to just handle it at Sellafield. Um, and I think if it was a 70-30 split, people would have started to have more sympathy with that argument. With a 50-50 split and the argument that this was actually helping the British taxpayer by keeping costs down, it was much easier to sell. So building work got underway, on a project which would cost nearly three billion pounds. The legacy of B38 had cost the company dearly, but at least its flagship project was underway. However, the troubles for Sellafield management were far from over. In December 1978, the discovery of a new, much more serious leak of highly radioactive liquor called into question their attitudes and procedures and began a process which would lead to a threat to close the plant down. The problem lay in this building, B701, which had been decommissioned 21 years earlier. 
but a pipe carrying waste to a tank from which it had once been tapped off for experiments at the UK Atomic Energy Authority's plant at Harwell had not been capped. For years, the liquid waste had been overflowing from a sump designed to catch any spillage and now lay several feet deep in the building. No one could say for sure how long this had been going on, nor exactly how much had seeped through to the soil outside. And it was worrying that this new radioactivity had only been discovered accidentally, whilst surveys to determine the extent of pollution caused by the earlier B-38 leak were being undertaken. Three months went by before the minister responsible was informed, and perhaps fortuitously for BNFL, a general election was imminent. That came very late in my period as a minister, but I think it was in December 1978 they discovered that 2,200 gallons of unconcentrated waste had leaked into the subsoil. Uh, it wasn't uh, brought to my attention until March, that was two or three months later, when they discovered I do not know. Um, in the election of 79, I was up in Liverpool uh, campaigning and I called uh, the nuclear inspectors uh, to see me to find out the truth. And I wrote a manuscript letter, because I wasn't in my office, to Sir John Hill, saying work on this is to stop. And he came to see me in my house, where we're sitting now, on the 28th of April. And uh, I had a, another example of what went on. I had sent the manuscript letter. After all, even in manuscript, a letter from a minister is a letter from a Secretary of State or minister. I found my officials had rung him up and had the letter uh, withdrawn and returned to the office without my authority. And uh, at that stage, it was too late. I mean, I was a lame duck minister only a few more days before the defeat of the Labour government. Uh, but even so, the Prime Minister intervened, Mr. Callaghan from Downing Street, to say that no reference was to be made to the military aspects of it, which was a confirmation of what had happened. But it was really outrageous that such a thing could occur. And when I said to Hill, um, what can you do about it? He said, well, you'd have to build a new plant to deal with it. The then uh, chief executive of the company described it as the building they forgot. And he said they shouldn't have. And of course, he was right. It shouldn't have been forgotten. I think that it did put a very strong warning to manage at the site that, that could, something like that could not be allowed to happen again. Well, it hadn't quite been forgotten about. I mean, it was covered by all the procedures, but the procedures weren't actually being carried out. That was a cause for concern. Uh, and the second cause for concern was um, were the excuses that were made by some of the uh, management at the time about the business. I mean, uh, it was suggested to uh, the nuclear installations inspectorate that uh, no one had had any reason to suppose that the liquor that everyone knew was in the store was in fact radioactive. Uh, now, well, maybe, maybe they suspected it might have been rainwater or something, and possibly it could have been, but you really can't live in the presence of so much radioactive liquor and just take it for granted um, that some liquid you know is in a particular place is harmless. And they did that. What many regarded as the biggest disaster, at least for public relations, came in 1983, when a discharge from the Sellafield pipeline released 50,000 curies of radioactivity into the Irish Sea. At the time, this was within the annual discharge limits. Today, it would be a very different story. The accident happened during an annual shutdown for maintenance. A mixture of radioactive liquid and solvents got into the sea tanks, the last point before discharge through the pipe. When it was discovered, an initial attempt was made to recover the mixture through a small return pipe. 
but the process would have taken a week and held up completion of the maintenance task. An effort was made to discharge the lighter contaminants from the top of the tank, whilst containing the radioactive crud at the bottom. In the event, it didn't work. Roy Pilling, who was then the head of the site, rang me on Friday evening and said he could actually see a slick of this solvent on the sea, which was unusually calm. And I think this is part of the problem. Had it not been such a calm sea, it's probable that solvent and radioactive, low-level radioactive material would have been dispersed in the sea, and we'd never have known. But in fact, we did know, because it appeared on the beach, leading in the end to a government advice for people not to make unnecessary use of the beach, which I think is perfectly fair in the circumstances. It lasted six months and led, of course, to a great deal of public concern and to feeling that we damaged local industry, the tourist industry. And again, the chairman, the chief executive and myself weren't told for a week, so we were pretty ir irritated too. What the incident did show um, was a certain, um, how should I put it, a, a certain uh, lack of seriousness, I think, with which some of the operative uh, people at Sellafield itself were actually taking the business of um, protecting the public from radioactivity. And that, of course, is very serious. It was six months before the Department of the Environment allowed a large section of West Cumbrian shoreline to be reopened to the public. Two years later, BNFL was fined £10,000 at Carlisle Crown Court for polluting the beaches. The regulators also insisted on an audit of the company's procedures and threatened to close them down if they didn't clean up their act within a year. But then in 1992 came an incident which involved a potential criticality, an explosion, when plutonium sprayed from a pipe inside a reprocessing cell. BNFL's argument that it was simply an anomaly was dismissed, and it was classified as a level three incident on the international scale of seven. It was clear that if we'd been reprocessing military fuel at that time, we weren't. The nature of that plutonium would have made even the amount of plutonium which did get a more serious possible event. So that in that sense, that was a serious incident and was judged so on the international scale which now operates in the industry of serious incidents. Even though it, it wasn't an incident, if you say an incident, it's only when something happens. This was a very much a what-if incident, but a very serious what-if incident. It had been planned that Thorpe should begin operations at the beginning of 1993. But in August 92, a public consultation was undertaken on the draft authorization which would allow the plant to be commissioned. Treasury officials met a delegation from Greenpeace at the end of September and were said to have been impressed by a report from the Science Policy Research Unit at the University of Sussex, which was highly critical of the project. The world had changed a great deal since the case put forward at the Windscale Inquiry some 16 years previously, and there was a great deal of interest in the new analysis of Thorpe's viability. Basically, the project was never going to make very much money over the first 10 years. It was going to make a very low rate of return, maybe 1 or 2% on assets, which was surprisingly low for what is essentially a monopoly endeavour. And at the same time, there were some real risks, especially in the area of decommissioning the plant. In other words, BNFL had made the assumption that they could wait 50 years before decommissioning after the plant closed down and had only set aside enough money uh, to take care of decommissioning on that assumption. If decommissioning were necessary a few years after close down, then even if they did make as much money as they thought during operation, that money would easily be eaten up and more by the extra bills for decommissioning that they hadn't provided for during the plant's lifetime. 
The delay in commissioning cost British nuclear fuels more money. Some suggest as much as a hundred million pounds. And the company was deeply concerned that their flagship project might yet fall at the last hurdle. The effect on the business and on the economy around Sellafield would have been disastrous. Oh, I think um, it was very much uh, the major concern for us. I mean, obviously, um, we'd had a lot of people dedicating their whole career to the to the building and the seeing through into operation of uh, a major part of BNFL's uh, business. So, yes, of course, I think everybody involved in that challenge. Uh, was very mindful of the fact that here we were at the completion of uh, Thorpe, ready to serve our, our customers' needs, and at the last minute having to get over a final hurdle to make sure that we could proceed through to commissioning. Eventually, the authorizations were granted, and there was a collective sigh of relief at BNFL. But amongst the environmentalists, there was a bitterness that, as previously, their arguments had been in vain. I have a feeling that these processes, both the public inquiry, which Friends of the Earth were very actively involved in back then, and the judicial review, which we took, Greenpeace took, um, to try and stop Thorpe opening once it had been built, uh, that the, the, the establishment has these processes organised so that if they've decided something should happen, it will, even when they know it's wrong. Now, that was clear by the time Thorpe was built. Everyone you talk to privately, inside government, treasury, Department of the Environment, wherever, even probably one or two people inside BNFL, and certainly plenty inside the nuclear industry, privately, off the record, would say, nobody would do this now. Uh, nobody would start it if we were starting today. Uh, but it's there, you know, and it's a bit like Concord and all these other things. No future, blind alley, but we've got this far, damn it, we might as well smash into the wall and do ourselves a serious injury, and that's what Thorpe is. So I don't think much would have made any difference, actually. But the debate over Thorpe is far from over. Its economics are uncertain, as the validity of the arguments in favour of reprocessing continues to come under pressure. The ambitious plans which had been in place for nuclear power around the world have been scaled down or abandoned. The fast breeder programme in the UK has died a death. The need to reprocess rather than store spent fuel is being challenged and uranium prices, far from increasing, have actually declined. And now some are suggesting that the contracts signed with the newly privatised UK utility are not nearly as secure as British nuclear fuels would like to believe them to be. Not at all. We've seen that with, between Germany and France, where they're quietly trying to change uh, reprocessing contracts into what are in effect storage contracts. They're trying to finesse it, fudge it, because they've got to deal with French public opinion but uh, they're not secure. And the idea that these are contracts, commercial contracts, these are intergovernmental agreements, they're not, there's nothing commercial about it, and they can be changed by governments. It's a valid point that uranium prices have not gone up as they were anticipated, but I don't think that is the key factor in utilities and governments deciding whether they will pursue the recycling option. Of course, economics are very important. They are a very important element of electricity generation by whatever means. But in the case of nuclear power, what we are able to provide utilities with is a service that takes away their spent fuel from their reactors 
and we treat it and we turn the products of reprocessing back to them to be reused. Of course we have to provide an efficient and economic service and we believe we do that. We do that because we still have our customers supplying us with their spent fuel for us to provide that service. But there are growing doubts about the performance of Thorpe and its ability to deliver. Doubts which British nuclear fuels have declined to refute with hard evidence. Thorpe was designed to cope with up to a thousand tons of spent fuel a year. That's a theoretical maximum, assuming everything works perfectly and there are no delays. But to account for normal production techniques, the price of Thorpe's reprocessing was costed on the ability to handle just 600 tons, leaving a generous headroom for any problems that might be encountered. This was later increased to 700 tons a year. However, there is no evidence performance has come anywhere near this quantity to date, and the company continues to talk of the ongoing commissioning of Thorpe. It started up two years ago. Um, and the chief executive of that day, Neville Chairman, said that he hoped in two years to have it up to something like full production, whatever that is, because it's supposed to do 7,000 tonnes over 10 years, but obviously it builds up and then could fall away, possibly. It should build up. But the start has been of concern, I think, within the company too. It certainly didn't have a good first year. Its second year it's improved, but it's still not up to that optimum output figure as far as I understand it. And so there's still work and they're still talking at BNFL of commissioning the plant. And I would certainly have expected it to be over after two years. The last figures released suggested just 120 tons had been sent to the shearers, the machines which chopped the fuel elements into small pieces. But that's only at the beginning of the reprocessing cycle. No figures are available for fuel which has completed the process. And BNFL stalwartly refuses to release them. The exact figure uh, we are not giving and the reason for that is that we don't want to be in a position of being challenged as though we were sort of producing chocolate bars and you said you would produce 27 and you've only produced 25 therefore there must be something wrong. What we are committing ourselves to is as I've said before a safe and quality process for commissioning the plant and we still have the same robust confidence that the plant in its first 10 years will safely reprocess the 700, the 7,000 tonnes it's contracted to reprocess. But the logic of BNFL's argument is difficult to understand. The need to ramp up production levels comes not from outside pressure to prove that Thorpe works efficiently, but from the 1,000 tonne a year limit the plant's design imposes. BNFL is contracted to reprocess 7,000 tonnes through Thorpe in 10 years. But if it takes until the end of the third year to reach full throughput, Thorpe will have to work the remaining seven years of its first decade dangerously close to its maximum capacity. The design throughput of Thorpe is about 1,000 tonnes a year. Um, when we thought that you would have around 6,000 tonnes in 10 years. That was a very conservative estimate. And as the design progressed, it became clear that we could get 7,000 tonnes out of it. And I'm confident that we, that we will. And you can see this from the way the plant is performing now. The, the key parts of the process, uh, 
we're now confident will perform at that rate. We have tested every part of the plant. So it is, in that sense, fully functional. But our current chief executive, who was appointed only a few months ago, has really reiterated and reinforced the key message of his predecessor, and that is safety first in all our operations. And that has been taken into the operation of Thorpe wholeheartedly. And the priority is, is to undertake a safe and quality commissioning programme. The time element is not a priority for BNFL. That would suggest that despite assurances, the period of time during which the first batch of fuel will be reprocessed could stretch beyond the 10 years presently allocated. And if that were to happen, it would bring about a recosting of the entire economics of the Thorpe plant. Well, uh, when I did my analysis, I assumed that at least in the, the base case, that uh, BNFL would get the throughput of six or 700 tonnes a year, which they wanted. Uh, it's certainly the case that in the first two years, they've done much worse than that. Whether that affects the fundamental economics of the project or not isn't yet clear. If it's just a minor postponement, maybe it won't matter. If, on the other hand, it means the plant is never going to work as well as they first thought, that's another kind of economic threat, which, frankly, I didn't pay much attention to in the original analysis. The Sellafield secrecy is helping to maintain the controversial nature of Thorpe, with analysts unable to calculate its success for lack of hard evidence. The plant, which has been the subject of bitter battles for 20 years, has yet to prove that the confidence expressed in it by British nuclear fuels and by government has been well placed. The argument against reprocessing is becoming stronger, and there are those who believe the whole concept of generating cheap electricity by nuclear means has been nothing more than a sham since the beginning. You see, we were told so many things. First of all, as I say, we were told it was uh, cheap. It isn't. Uh, when they began to privatize the nuclear power um, um, industry, they discovered that it was three and a half times the cost of coal. Now, that is a staggering differential, particularly when you remember that the pits were closed by Mrs. Thatcher on the grounds that they were uneconomic. They were only a third of the cost of nuclear power. Secondly, um, nuclear power is gradually, you know, being phased out. I remember talking to O'Leary, who was uh, former chairman of the Federal Power Commission in Washington on my last visit as a minister, and he said something to me that absolutely staggered me at the time. He said, you come back in 100 years, there won't be any nuclear power in the world anyway. And the Americans had had the 2000-2000 program 2,000 nuclear reactors by the year 2000 all cancelled. Not all, but very, very few could be built. So we were left, and uh, we were told there was a shortage of uranium. Absolutely untrue. There was a, a ring, a monopolistic ring, that kept the price of uranium high. The price of uranium fell. So at every stage, it was fraudulent. And the reason that it was put was because of the bomb. And then ultimately, of course, uh, the... Um, plutonium from our nuclear weapons, from our uh, so-called atoms for peace station, we're going to America to make the bomb. So I think uh, the people are slowly waking up to that, but certainly the whole environment, the perspective in which people saw nuclear power in 1977-78 has been completely changed.
and that has had a major factor, been a major factor in altering people's perceptions about the Thorpe project after it had been built and commissioned. One of the arguments used against the concept of reprocessing is that it creates stockpiles of plutonium, a man-made radioactive element with a half-life, the time taken for its radioactive emissions to decrease by a half, of a quarter of a million years. Opponents say it should be left in situ as a small percentage of the used fuel extracted from nuclear reactors at the end of its useful life, rather than separated off in the reprocessing plant. By the turn of the century, the stockpile of civil plutonium will exceed that used for military purposes, and it's becoming an embarrassment for countries around the world. Britain's Magnox power stations alone have produced more than 32 tonnes in the past 30 years. Plutonium was to be used in fast breeder stations, but the world's latest attempt to build one at Monju in Japan suffered a setback when the coolant containment failed. It's now thought unlikely reactors like these can be made to work effectively for decades to come. But it was on the basis of a host of stations like these that much of the case for civil reprocessing was made. Obviously, in the context of, uh, of uh, plans to build a series of fast reactors, it was essentially you couldn't do, couldn't do it any other way. But when the fast reactor, and this, this was happening in the, in the 70s, and we were very well aware of this, uh, was disappearing further and further into the future before it would become economically viable, then people did begin to ask questions, well, why, why are we reprocessing? And uh, um, some people saw reprocessing as an essential form of managing the spent fuel as a, 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 an integral part of, of, of the waste treatment uh, um, procedures. Uh, whereas uh, others uh, argued, and I, w I think I was one of them, one of the earlier ones, to argue that uh, simply storing the spent fuel until you, you knew the, what the position would be was, was a more sensible approach than, than to continue to reprocess. The collapse of the fast breeder program, which would have used a fuel comprising 20% plutonium, has led to a major rethink of policy. But now BNFL is building a plant which will manufacture a new type of mixed oxide fuel, known as MOX, containing a much smaller proportion of plutonium. A similar plant in Germany has been abandoned before commissioning because of opposition from the Greens. So 150 tons has been contracted to go to German reactors from Sellafield. Of the UK's civil reactors, just one will be able to use MOX. Size will be. Mixed oxide fuel is, is simply the nuclear industry or British nuclear fuels clutching at straws. Thorpe was developed because it produces separated plutonium. That separated plutonium was meant to be used in the fast breeder. The point is the fast breeder doesn't work. BNFL now have lots of plutonium. Nobody really wants that because it costs a phenomenal amount of money to store it. It has huge security implications because, you know, Plutonium is the fuel for bombs. So now they're looking for a, if you like, a reverse justification. Well, we can develop this other, uh, this other product which will use the plutonium. But if it is safer to keep plutonium in fuel, i.e. if it's better to have the plutonium you've already separated out, turn it into mixed oxide fuel, you have to ask the question, why extract the plutonium in the first place? Our customers, um are pleased to be provided with that service 
Um, it's a growing demand. We're building a plant here. The French are just in the final stages of commissioning their plant and are also now talking of extending that plant. There's one in Belgium, which is also um, probably going to expand its production to meet the demand from reprocessing customers to return their separated products into a very usable form to generate further amounts of electricity. But it's hard to see the justification for MOX. On economic grounds alone, it's not an attractive proposition. According to German nuclear experts, its cost is between four and five times that of uranium fuel rods. And it's not, they say, popular on the international market. Uh, as a commercial enterprise, I'm not sure it makes an awful lot of sense because even if the plutonium is regarded as a free good, mixed oxide fuel is more expensive than conventional fuel. But as part of a long-term strategy to dispose of plutonium and with some suitable public subsidy because it's hard to see a mixed oxide plant making money, then it could be one sensible disposal route as a way of getting rid of plutonium. There seems little more than a political argument in favour of MOX, and from some quarters at least, a strong proliferation argument against. It was Tony Benn, sensitive to the nuclear dustbin label, who came up with the idea of returning reprocessed plutonium and waste to the country of origin. But the plutonium and uranium in mixed oxide fuel could be separated by relatively simple means, giving ready access to the material from which atom bombs are constructed. Ironically, the largest amount of black market plutonium discovered in Germany last year was as part of a MOX fuel mixture. In the early days, we used to be contented in the thought that plutonium derived from civil fuel elements because of the high burn-up was unsuitable for nuclear weapons. But in, I think it was 1962, the American demonstrated that civil plutonium could indeed be made into, into, into a weapon. So there's a proliferation worry about this. So this rather clever idea, which Reggie Ben thought he had of not becoming the, the nuclear dustbin, has, has a very unfortunate effect on, 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 on the uh, proliferation I issue. Uh, and indeed, if you have to reprocess foreign fuel, then by far the most sensible thing to do is to then hang on to the, the plutonium and, and for that matter the high-level waste in, in, in this country, because there's nobody better uh, or more secure than British nuclear fuels for looking after this. Plans for a permanent storage facility are now being put forward. An investigation is underway into building an underground repository at Sellafield for some waste products created by the nuclear industry. An inquiry into an application by NIREX to carry out seismological testing is due to report later this year. But it's a sign of the state of Britain's nuclear policy that even should it get the go-ahead, and the site found to be satisfactory, it will only store intermediate level waste. And until highly radioactive waste is dealt with in an acceptable way, the danger of further leakages from the Sellafield site will be ever present. There's an historical problem at Sellafield which cannot be solved uh, until and unless that waste, much of it in liquid form, some of it nobody quite knows uh, what it is, um, is got into solid form and disposed of. That's absolutely necessary. And uh, anything which uh, delays or prevents that actually does contribute to an unsafe situation. 
it's actually mind-boggling, this legacy. What this society has done in a very, very short period of time is create a waste product which completely transcends all human experience. You know, if the dinosaurs discovered radioactive waste or nuclear power, we would still be dealing with some of the products that they would have created. That's, if you like, the timescale we're talking about. Some radioactivity is very short-lived and will decay away in a short period of time. But in a million years, say you build a nuclear waste dump at Sellafield, in a million years, there will still be radioactive waste, which is still dangerous, in that dump. And that is really the nature of the scientific task that NIREX face. They have to be able to come up with a safety case that can talk about that sort of timetable. It's fair to say that British nuclear fuels has enjoyed a checkered history. It inherited plant from the Atomic Energy Authority, which was under-maintained, and had been designed with little or no regard to the difficulties which would be faced at the time of decommissioning. The military purpose for which the site had been developed continued to cast its shadow over Sellafield for some time, having engendered a secretive nature amongst many who worked there even in dealings with their own managers and directors. Some of the mistakes and errors of judgment made in the 70s and 80s would be likely to be met with a very different response now, and without doubt did much to damage the public image of an industry of which so much had been promised. They certainly have damaged the industry, in the sense, if only in the sense that economically, it's now a very expensive industry, and a lot of the spend on um, plants to bring down discharges to the sea or to, to surveillance of old plants and so on has been forced on Sellafield certainly by mistakes. If you don't do enough about your problems promptly, whether it's in terms of communication or dealing with them, if you delay it in any way, the ultimate cost will be greater, is my experience. And the increasing cost then of the site's operation concerned the customer who again went round, whether publicly or privately to journalists, saying some nasty things about reprocessing. And that didn't help attitudes. There were some fearsome rows within the industry about reprocessing costs. And I guess they'll still go on. Thank you for listening to this episode of the History Express podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, then please look in the show description notes for a link that will allow you to help support the podcast. Thank you very much for listening, and until next time, have a great day.